0: Luke chapter 19 this morning as we uh, continue seeing Messiah and how he seeks and saves and his journey toward Jerusalem. I read a news account this week of a gentleman who had a different kind of mission in his life. This man had uh, lived a life of luxury and he was uh, a very wealthy man. The only, di- the only thing is that he got his wealth uh, illegally. He got his wealth through defrauding people and scamming people and uh, skimming money off of people and mail fraud and all these kinds of things. He was caught and he was convicted. But when he was pla- placed in prison in Colorado, this man never stopped his mission he continued doing this very thing and figured out some sort of really crazy scheme, which I don't even know how in the world you would do it, but he tapped in somehow to unclaimed oil claims from companies or whatever and skimmed $700,000 from federal prison. Then he escaped from prison and About five years later, they finally caught up with him in Florida where he had just purchased a $1.5 million home, was wearing a Rolex and driving a high-end Mercedes. He wasn't hiding. He was going under an assumed name. He was actually at a charity benefit when someone actually turned him in. He was living the high life. Listen, he was on the mission to live the good life with other people's money that's what his mission and that's what his life was all about we're going to look today and see in part two of this section uh, about a man named Zacchaeus and really we're talking here even more than about Zacchaeus we're talking about the one who sought him while this man had the mission to go and to get money and to get wealth, here we see Jesus had a very different mission. We know exactly what Jesus' mission was. Look in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Some commentators refer to this as really the whole theme of the entire book of the Gospel of Luke, and they're probably right. Jesus speaking here says for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. We know that this is the case. If you look in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 speaking to Mary, she was told you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins see, this was the mission of Jesus. And we looked last week and saw that with the mission of Jesus, when Jesus has a mission, first of all, it's a noble mission, it's a good mission, but when Jesus has a mission, He always completes it. He always does it. So when Jesus seeks someone, He then finds them. Notice what it says that Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So He seeks them but then He also saves them. He doesn't seek them and then hope that they are saved. He seeks them and saves them. It's just like we sang. There is going to come a day when Christ is going to return, and there is going to be that day, read Daniel chapter 12, when he is going to call, and all of those who are dead will come, and all of those who have perished will rise. Jesus will call them. They won't say, No, I don't feel like rising. They will obey. So when Jesus calls, there is an awakening in the heart. There is the obedience that follows. And that's exactly what you have here in Zacchaeus. The theme, if you're taking notes and looking on the back of your bulletin here, the theme is the mission of Jesus Christ was to seek and to save the lost. Apostle Paul recognized this in 1 Timothy 1.15 when he said, "...the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost." And I really don't know many Christians who would say, well, Paul, that was probably wrong. I'm the foremost of all sinners. Because that's how we all feel, right? We all feel totally undeserving of God's grace. And that it really is the right attitude to have. Well, we considered how Zacchaeus prepared to see Jesus. Let's just briefly review some of these things. He enters into Jericho. He had already been in Jericho or on the way when he healed blind Bartimaeus. And we learn that from, I believe, the Gospel of Mark, his name. And he healed the blind man there. There's a great crowd that is following him. The reason that the great crowd is following him is not far from there, probably about 14 miles from there. You have to flip over to the Gospel of John to find this. But a great crowd is following Jesus because he had done a miracle that hardly anyone had ever done before. Matter of fact, nobody had ever done it before. And that was he raised Lazarus from the dead. And this wasn't one of those ones where, you know, someone had just died. This was Lazarus was dead. I mean, he wasn't mostly dead. He was all dead. Okay, He was completely dead. He was dead for days. And as the King James Version says, he stinketh. Okay, Lazarus was really, really dead. And he called him out. He called, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus obeys. Lazarus comes to life and walks forth. Now, when that happens, when you see someone doing that, boy, you you want to follow a man like that. You want to yeah, word spreads. And so there was a great crowd following him. And so he's going through Jericho. He had just healed this blind man. And as he's passing through, and we looked at what Jericho was like, Jericho was a paradise. It was a it was a beautiful place, but it was also one of the hubs for taxation. Capernaum, uh, 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 Jericho, and Jerusalem, and so this was a this was a a, a place where uh, the the IRS was stationed. And there were lots of tolls and going east to west, west to east, you would pass through here. And boy, this was a great place for collection. And so here was this man named Zacchaeus. And Jesus was coming through and here was a man, Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector. A word that's only used here in the New Testament. I'm not even sure fully what that was, other than the fact that we know he was important in stature. Not necessarily in height, but in stature as far as his position. He was well known because he had a lot of agents working for him. And so. To be aligned with the taxation was to be aligned with Rome, was to be aligned with the oppressors. These people that were notorious for scheming and lying and and to be seen as a tax collector, which also actually is a theme in the Gospel of Luke. You have blindness, you have the, the tax collectors. These people who were called sinners... That, that these people were the worst of the worst. You don't associate with them. You don't hang out with them. These are the people that you don't want anything to do with. And so here is, here is this man named Zacchaeus. I had a lot of people working under him. And because he was a chief tax collector that would send out his agents to do his dirty work, he would come back and then he would skim off of what they had made. And because of that, he was very rich. Now Luke is writing in this gospel and when he one of the things that he is doing is he is trying to show that there is a comparison here. If you look back at Luke chapter 18, you see that there's another rich man. This was a young man who was rich. He was filled with pride and thought that he was a great man. And Jesus told him, go lead everything that you have and you come and follow me. And after meeting Jesus, that young rich ruler, that young rich man, it says that he left and he was sad. And why was he sad? It says because he had many possessions. He had many things. And so to follow Jesus and what Jesus was trying to get him to do was to come to a recognition that he truly needed Jesus. That Jesus was worth it all. And so this man, this rich man here is to be contrasted with this rich man that we see in with Zacchaeus. Also, we see the the contrast with the previous blind man who was blind physically and couldn't see where Jesus was, couldn't see him, and Jesus comes and heals him. And here we have a man who couldn't see Jesus and did everything that he could to see Jesus, even being, as you'll see, undignified by climbing up into a sycamore tree, hanging over so that when Jesus would come by, he could see Jesus. Now, it doesn't say that he went up there in verse 3. It doesn't say that Zacchaeus goes up there so that Jesus will see him. It says that he goes up there so that he could see who Jesus was. He, he had heard about this Jesus. He had heard about this man. And he saw a need. Evidently, he had everything that the world could offer. He had money, He had power. He had his own little circle of friends. Nobody else would really want to hang out with him because he was a tax collector. But he had his own tax collector buds that he could hang out with. And so here is this man who was not fulfilled with the world, with what riches could give. And it says that he was seeking, in verse 3, who Jesus was. And so he runs ahead and climbs up to a sycamore tree which is kind of like an oak tree, has a smaller trunk, low to the ground, branches f- flailing out so he could, it, it would be easy for him to climb out. And so this is a very undignified thing for a rich man to do. And so he climbs out so that he could see Him because he was about to pass that way. But see, Jesus walks by and when Jesus sees him, Jesus calls him by name. Zacchaeus now one thing that we see here ultimately is in verse 10 because Jesus says I'm the one who comes to seek and save the lost the onus is on Jesus and what he is doing Jesus is the one who is the seeker it's not Zacchaeus the only reason Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus is because Jesus is seeking Zacchaeus go back and read John chapter 6 we dealt with that last week Romans 3 10 and 11 there's none righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for God this is God who loves us and and because we we love him only because he first loved us he sought us and so this son of man is seeking him so he's passing through the crowd you have to imagine this he's walking through this crowd they're all these people all over the place and and everywhere you look it's just a sea of people and he stops and he points to one person just one person and he doesn't say excuse me sir he doesn't say that does he he calls him by name Zacchaeus and and how does he know his name well he's the lord so he knows all things He knows who He is, and so He calls him. Jesus is the one who seeks Zacchaeus. And so Jesus, we see last week, Jesus calls the lowly to Himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 talks about that, that there aren't many wise, there aren't many in great worldly standards who are called, but God calls the foolish to confound the wise. He's talking about us. Those who know Him. And so Jesus calls Zacchaeus. He calls Zacchaeus to himself. Zacchaeus is given a command. And look in verse 5 what it says. He looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. It's, a, it's actually a one, one uh, word that is a command and it, he explains the manner in which he is to do it. Come down and hurry. Hur- in a hurried way, get down here. And so he says, I must, and that was a key word, for I must, for I must, it's three words in English, but it's one word in the original text, the word day, it is necessary, that is a divine necessary, Jesus uses it uh, many times, for I must be turned over to the chief priests. And be raised on and crucified and raised on the third day. For I must preach the gospel. He uses this word several times throughout the Gospel of Luke to show the divine prerogative of God, the plan that must occur. And so, this isn't an accident. This isn't happenstance. This is divinely planned. And so Jesus says, "Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house." today now let's look here for just a moment at point number three here on your outline on the back how there are reactions to jesus's encounter with zacchaeus first of all we see zacchaeus's reaction notice that it says so he hurried down and he hurried and came down and received him joyfully Um, there must have been something even in that moment where Zacchaeus had heard a lot about Jesus, known a lot about Jesus. The text doesn't actually tell us, so I don't want to go too much into that. But there must have been something that he knew that this man was unlike any other man. First of all, he went out to see him. And second of all, when he commands him to do something, he did it right away. No doubt, there were lots of other people around saying, be quiet, what are you doing? Get down. And he didn't listen to them. But here comes Jesus, he encounters Jesus, and Jesus tells him to come down, and he obeys him right away, and it says, and he received him, he received him joyfully, he hurries and goes down, like Saul of Tarsus, when Jesus knocked him off his horse on his way to Damascus, when he was killing people, he uh, crucified or persecuting the Christians he knocks him off his horse and that's the first thing that Saul does he says what do you want me to do Lord he recognizes who Jesus is he recognizes him as the Lord and he submits to his lordship and so Zacchaeus comes down and he receives him joyfully He obeys Him, and His attitude is one of joy. He receives Christ joyfully because it is no burden to have Christ. Rather, it is a joy. Now, that doesn't mean your life is going to be just oh easy breezy. But it means that when you have Christ, this man had everything, but having Christ brought him joy. And so, Paul the apostle, could write to rejoice not in circumstances, but to rejoice in the Lord. And again I say rejoice. Paul wrote that from prison, by the way. I look around I don't see any of us in prison. But he wrote that from prison and he said to rejoice. To rejoice in what? In your circumstance? No. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Why do you think he says that again? Because people don't get things the first time right people they don't they don't people don't learn concepts the first time you have to teach them over and over and over uh, i told you uh you know for those of you who might be new i used to teach elementary school many years ago till the lord saved me from that and uh but you would just you would do the same thing over and over every day you're going through flashcards, the sa- the same multiplication tables the same ones over and over. Why? Why didn't we just say, okay, let's go through your 12 times tables one time. Alright kids, you got that? No, they need to hear it over and over. Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say rejoice. So who are you rejoicing in? The Lord. Your circumstances are going to change. Jesus is not. So we need to be reminded of that. To rejoice in the Lord. And again I say rejoice. Paul tells us that we are to rejoice in Christ. Embrace Him. So this is application point number one. We need to be like Zacchaeus. We need to embrace Christ and His ways with joy. We need to embrace Christ and His ways with joy. He is, Zacchaeus is forsaking his old ways and he is embracing Christ. It says he receives Him and he's going to receive it with joy. That means when you follow Jesus, it says, if, you've, if they hated Me, they're going to hate you too. And that's fine. You're going to have to just rejoice in that. You're just going to have to rejoice in that and just find joy in knowing Him. You see, joy is actually a fruit of the Spirit. It's an evidence that Christ's Spirit resides in you. And by the way, you need to remember the flip side of this too. Jesus receives sinners how? Grumbling. Does He say, look, I'm coming down. I'm going to save you all. I'm not real happy about it. I mean, I save you and you still complain. But I'll do it. He he rejoices. He rejoices. He is in Luke 15, that Father that sees His Son coming and runs after Him in an undignified way, runs after Him and receives Him with joy. He is joyful in receiving of sinners. He's glad. Uh, Some people come to Christ and they think, He doesn't want me. Oh no. He wants you to embrace Him. He wants you to take Him by faith. He gets joy and pleasure and delight and glory and honor. It is near to His heart. That is to be contrasted with what happens to to the people all the crowd looks at Him and notice how they respond. Look at verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. They all grumbled. They, They were mad. They were mad that Jesus was receiving sinners. I guess they thought they were better than Zacchaeus. And so they thought, well, Jesus should receive us. We're better. But they grumbled. Uh, notice why they were grumbling. Because see, Jesus had told Zacchaeus that I must stay at your house. So you, gotta, you can't miss that. To, to associate with people, to, to have them in your home, especially in this time period, meant that there was a certain kind of uh, stigmatization that went if you had sinful people over and so it was it was looked down upon it was frowned upon it actually had this idea that you embraced and you 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 gave Credence to everything that they did. And that's not really what was happening here. Jesus actually was going to transform Zacchaeus. He wasn't saying, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down. I want to hang out with you because I want to learn your ways. I want to become one of your henchmen and I want to kind of get rich too. He wasn't saying that. He says, Zacchaeus, come. Embrace me and I'm going to change you. And so he says, I'm going to go to your house. And these people saw it. They weren't, it wasn't that they were upset that Jesus had spoken to Zacchaeus, but it was, they were upset because of what Jesus said. I must stay at your house. And when they saw it, it says they all grumbled. Maybe not every single person. Maybe every single person. I don't know. But it says they all grumbled. And here's what they were saying. He is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, two things about that verse. First of all, the, that idea of that word to be a guest of it's it's kind of a word it's a, it's a it's a verb there to to be the guest of it's only used two other times in the new testament and it actually means to unhitch animals for the night so in other words here's what you're doing you're you're pulling along you know your horse or your donkey okay your donkey's pulling along your cart or whatever and and you come you come to the to the inn and you're, you're going to stay there. And so what you do is you unhitch it, tie him up, give him some water, give him some food, because you're going to let him rest. He's going to be there for tonight. night. So what, is, what are they saying? This man isn't just going to his house. Jesus is going and is staying there. He is going to go. He is going to teach Zacchaeus. He is going to be part of Zacchaeus' life. So they were upset about this. And second of all, That word sinner is in an emphatic position in the original text. It's kind of like this. That they would have said sinner. Oh, that sinner. He's going to be the guest of that guy. They were emphasizing the fact that this is a vile, disgusting human being. The lowest of the low. And that's who Jesus is going after. Well, yeah. That's who Jesus is going after. He's going after the lowest of the low. And uh, we need to do something very important. When we look at this, we need to be, uh, point two, we too need to be aware of a critical spirit. We need to be aware of a critical spirit. The, it, it, a critical spirit is a very easy thing to have very easy thing to have and so I don't want to get too far off the the trail on this but I want you to simply note something the New Testament or the Bible in general never affirms grumbling as a good thing never I mean even when they are despitefully using you he doesn't say okay well now you can grumble When Jesus was going to the cross. When Jesus was on the cross. Remember all those seven sayings that He had on the cross that are recorded? Do you remember how many of those were grumbling? Zero. What are we supposed to do? We are supposed to do all things, Paul says, without what? Grumbling and complaining. So, we we first of all just note that it is never shown to be a positive thing. As a matter of fact, grumbling is what the Pharisees do. Do you, do you remember back in Luke 15? Luke 15, when he goes after the shows tells the parable of the lost coin, and he tells the parable of the lost sheep, and he tells the parable of the lost son. All of that was in response to Jesus was hanging out with sinners and He wasn't affirming what they were doing. He was seeking to transform them and the Pharisees were grumbling. See, the Pharisees were the older brother in that parable of the prodigal son. And so what Jesus here is doing, He is showing these people that you, don't, you should not have a critical spirit. Even in bad times, it's not okay. I want you to think about this. Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28. Paul's in prison, and while he's in prison, you know how it is, there's competition. And the people that were proclaiming Jesus, they saw that. This might be hard to believe, but they saw Paul, this apostle. A lot of times Paul was attacked for being an apostle. His apostleship was uh, on attack. And so what the people did was they saw that he was in prison. They saw that as an opportunity. They saw that as an opportunity to one-up Him. And so while He was in prison, people were going around and they were saying things. And it says that Paul said that people were preaching Christ and sometimes they were preaching Christ for selfish gain. And sometimes they were doing it for envy and that they were heaping even that punishment upon Him while He's in prison. And you know what Paul's response to that was? He said, you know, of all of that, even though those people are out there, they're proclaiming Christ, they're trying to punish me for it, I'm here in prison, even though they're mistreating me, I'm just glad Christ is being proclaimed. That's what I'm happy about. Boy, what an example. Isn't isn't that a good example? Boy, that's a convicting example. Here, we see, second of all, don't be surprised that if you serve Christ, if you do the work of the ministry, that people are going to criticize you. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're going to criticize you. Um, Joel Beakey has a book. I met with some a group of pastors recently and we were talking about stuff. We weren't grumbling. We were just talking about stuff. It might have been some grumbling and we'll repent about that later, but... You know, we, we were talking about all the different things and somebody brought up this book called Pastor and His Critics. And so because if you're going to be a pastor, people are going to criticize you. They're going to shoot you an email. You didn't say this right. You didn't do that. You didn't visit me. I had a hangnail. You didn't call me. You know, I mean, all kinds of just stuff, you know. And uh, and, and so you just need to know that if you serve Christ, um you know, people are gonna criticize you. Beaky talks about in this book, they criticized Moses, they criticized Aaron, criticized Paul, they criticized Jesus, they killed James, they criticized everybody, and they're gonna criticize you too. Matter of fact, if you if you're gonna serve Christ, you need to realize that people are finicky. I've shared this with a couple of people. This is this to me is just hysterical. I was just doing my daily Bible reading. And in Acts 28, Paul is there on Malta. And uh, he meets the native people. And he says, you know what? I'm going to go help these people. He's shipwrecked, right? He's a prisoner. He's shipwrecked. He says, I'm going to help these native people. I'm going to go gather some sticks for the fire. He goes, grabs the sticks, grabs a big pile, pulls out, and, and a viper, it says, latches onto his arm. Okay? And so he's like flailing his arm finally the the viper goes off and and the people you know what they accused him of here he was he was just serving he was just trying to be helpful and you know what they said you must be a murderer this is this is it's it literally says justice has got him now people don't talk like that today what do people non-religious people what do they say oh karma right so you could read that in here uh That's karma. (laughs) He was a murderer. See, he's a murderer. The viper got him. Karma got him. Well, you know what happened to Paul? He didn't swell up. He didn't die. Nothing happened to him. So he goes from being a murderer that because that didn't happen, you know what they then started saying? He must be a god. Now, oh, he's a god. And Paul's like, look, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a god either, okay? Just you know i 'm just here trying to serve you. people are finicky. one minute they 'll tell you one thing and the next minute they're telling you something else. but you just got to realize if you're going to serve Christ and remember we talked about that right We talked about who is to do the work of the ministry the the, the pastors the elders are to equip the saints of the church that 's you to do what the work of the ministry so that means all you all in Pennsylvania, we say all yin's, okay? But down here, you say all y'all are to do the work of the ministry, okay? So when you, you say, all right, I'm going to do some work in the ministry, somebody's going to criticize you about it. And you say, thank you very much, I appreciate that, and you move on, okay? So you need to understand that. So thirdly, we need to be careful. Don't be the one who has a critical spirit towards those who watch over your soul, It's not to your advantage. Here, they were doing this to Jesus. Jesus is the one who is seeking and they're being critical of Him. Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews says that, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. People think that it's their self-appointed task to be the overseer of overseers. And uh, the writer of Hebrews says, uh, it's not to your advantage to do that. It's just not. It's not your advantage to have a critical spirit and to go forward. And finally, we are told that we are to not have a critical spirit towards others. Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling and disputing, indicating there are others there. James 5.9 tells us, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. If you look down, this was last week, but in 1 Corinthians 10.8-11, Paul makes a really interesting connection he makes this connection between sexual immorality and grumbling of israel most people would say yeah sexual immorality that's pretty bad you shouldn't be doing that but grumbling yeah we'll have a grumble fest but paul makes the connection between those two and so if you you look at those you see that there is that Uh, section where this is just not something that is good that doesn't flow out of a pious heart and so these people were grumbling whereas as Zacchaeus had joy in knowing Jesus the fruit of the spirit the crowd had grumbling against Jesus's ministry this showed that they had the fruit of the flesh like the Pharisees and the prodigal son It also contrasts the crowd with someone else, God. See, because God and all of heaven, what what does God and all of heaven do when one sinner repents? There is rejoicing. There's rejoicing. There's not grumbling. And so we see, like the Father in Luke 15, Jesus rejoices when a sinner repents. Don't, Don't have that kind of an attitude. Be careful. Be, be careful. It's easy to criticize lots of other ministries and lots of other pastors and all this kind of stuff. Just, just be careful about that. Point number four here, we want to see that Zacchaeus demonstrates salvation. Contrast here in verse 8, we see that there's here the crowd to the grumblers. There's a contrast here of the crowd to the grumblers. Notice the precise wording of Dr. Luke. What Zacchaeus did. Zacchaeus stood. That's a very interesting word for a little man, isn't it? Isn't that interesting how he, he does? He, he probably means that in two different ways. He probably means, first of all, he literally stood up, but sometimes you know he could have stood up and nobody would have even seen it. But he stands up, but he also it means he metaphorically is standing up. He's standing up to tell the truth and to proclaim who Jesus is. So, he is speaking to the Lord here, and he's doing this in front of others. He stands up, and it says, Behold, Lord, he recognizes who Jesus is, the Lord. He says, The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Two things that he's doing here, the words here are in the present tense, so there's a lot of discussion as to exactly what this means, and also when he did that. And honestly, we just don't know. But sometime I think this happens probably after dinner. That's a kind of a motif that Luke has. Uh, so probably this is occurring, he, he goes to his house, he eats dinner, he stays there, maybe he's there a couple days, I don't know. But he, he then stands up, and this is a public declaration, he, he includes and says, half my goods I'm going to give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, anything, I'll restore it fourfold. Now, there, these, of these two things, first, you have to see that he says, I'm going to give away half of my wealth. Now, that goes greatly against Jewish custom. In Jewish custom, they would say, if you are wise and you want to be generous, you give away 20%. 20% is, that's kind of like the high mark, that's like where you look at that and you go, wow, you know, you are a generous man. If you give more than that, people would look down on you. They would say, man, you're, just, you're frivolous with your money, you're, you're, you're wasting it. What are you doing? What's wrong with you? It was looked down upon. And so they would say that that would be unwise. So he's given away 50% and that they felt was foolish, but he didn't care. Because instead of having his own wealth, he had the wealth of Christ. And so, if he has Christ, he has everything. The second thing that he says is he, he shows forth that he has truly met the Savior because he says he's going to go above and beyond the law. He says, if I've defrauded anyone, and that Greek text there actually has it, it, it indicates if I have done something and I have. Okay? That that that's how you actually have to read that. If I've defrauded anyone and I have, then I will repay fourfold. Now, according to the law, the person in Leviticus six five or Numbers five seven, the voluntary restitution only included repaying the person what you took from them or defrauded them from plus one fifth or twenty percent. So you uh, cheated someone out of 100 bucks, you gave them $100 back plus 20 So you give them back $120. Now, if you ha- accidentally or uh, actually in, on purpose um, killed an animal or stole an animal, Exodus twenty two one says that if a man steals or kills an ox or a sheep, he will pay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And so what he is doing here is is he is actually imposing. He, he's only required to give back 20%. He's going to give back fourfold. So, so what you see here is he is going above and beyond the call of duty. The call of what God has called him to do. And so, what Christ did here is Christ didn't just strike at His head. Christ struck Zacchaeus' heart. He got to his heart. So that no longer does he care about that. He cares about giving. The, the greedy one now becomes the generous one. He doesn't care about his stuff. And so, what you see is you see point number three, and this is something that we need to do. So, let me just stop here and say, this is something that we need to do. We need to expect God to do the impossible. And you say, where do you get that from? Where where does that come? Flip right back to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, you recall, Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler, and jump down just the verse 24 to 25. It says that Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, the rich man had become sad, Jesus said this, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He says, you want to know how hard it is? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now that sounds like that is what? Impossible. He's not talking about some kind of gate that it, the camel has to go down underneath. That, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about literally a camel going through the eye of a needle. It's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to do that. Only one person can do that. Only one person can make that camel so small and put them through that needle. And that's Jesus. And so that's exactly what you see here. You are seeing the camel going through the eye of a needle. When Zacchaeus turns and embraces Christ, you're seeing this very thing happen. Only Jesus can do that. Only God can do that. That's one of the great things about God and his salvation. That if God can save a rich, man like greedy Zacchaeus, a murderous persecutor of Christ like Paul, depraved people like you and me, then he can save anyone. No one is beyond the grace of God. Note what Paul says. Jot this down. Look it up later. Note what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. And you, you, know, you know that Corinth was notorious for just being a Crazy church. They had a lot of crazy problems. But that's because it was filled with crazy people. Okay? And these people, notice what Paul says. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Why does he say not to be deceived? That means because there are a lot of people out there deceiving you. saying that the unrighteous will inherit. And so he says... Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. You stop and think about that and you're like, wow, then who's left? But notice what Paul says. He says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. You're you're sitting in a congregation and you are filled with people who used to be sexually immoral and idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals and thieves and greedy people and drunkards and revilers, mockers of God, swindlers. You're filled with people who used to do those things, but they encountered and they embraced Jesus and Jesus changed them. Jesus didn't affirm them, Jesus changed them. And so what we need to do, we need to we need to expect God to do that. So I know it can be you 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 might reach out to your coworker and you're like, my coworker, man, every time my coworker walks past my desk, you know, he says, you know, what's up, holy roller? You know, how you doing, Christian? How was church on Sunday? You know, don't give up on your coworker. You've invited your neighbor to church 500,000 times. And every time comes up with an excuse. Oh, we got fire ants. I, I can't make it this week. I'm sorry. You know, and don't give up. You've got an uncle who is just antagonistic, who thinks that you're a bigot. Who thinks that you're in, intolerant? Don't give up. You never know what God can do. If God can save Zacchaeus and God can save you, don't don't think like oh Zacchaeus is a really bad sinner. But I mean, thankfully, I'm not such a bad sinner. No, we're we're in the same boat, folks. We're in the same boat, same boat, and it's sinking. Okay, so so don't give up. Don't give up. It's easy to give up. I've given up, so I'm preaching to myself. Don't give up. When you share the gospel, when you, when you pray, don't give up. See and expect God to do impossible things. But I want you to see what happens in verse 9. Jesus affirms Zacchaeus' salvation. Jesus affirms his salvation. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come. To this house, since he is a son of Abraham, today salvation has come to this house. Today is an interesting word that uh, he is he uses, indicating that it's an immediate thing. He says that this has happened because he is the son of Abraham. Now, what does he mean here? Is he saying that all Jews are saved? If you were in Abraham, then you are all right. By the way, the word salvation here is an unusual word for Luke to use. But it means that he has his relationship with God restored. Now, it would have been thought that, hey, I'm Jewish. I'm God's chosen people. Therefore... Amen. And there are people that still think that today. There are even Christians that sometimes think that today. But that is not indeed the case. He he explains to him, truly, today salvation has come. Now you do see an allusion to faith because he says that he received him. But more so, what Jesus shows here is that it's not because of his physical relationship, but rather it's because of his faith. See, a true son of Abraham is not one who is physical, but is one who is spiritual. Galatians 6, 3-7 says, "...just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham." You remember, did you go to Sunday school? How many of you went to Sunday school, right? You went to Sunday school and you, and you sang that song. Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. You're Jewish? I didn't know that. No. He says, it's by faith. Those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And so that's what he is saying here. This is the one who Romans 4.12 says that walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. You see, Romans 4 makes it clear that Abraham wasn't justified, wasn't made right, or declared righteous before God by his works, but rather, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul then makes the argument here that Abraham wasn't saved because of his works. Now the works for the law of the Jews were many. But first and foremost was circumcision. And so Paul asked the question, was Abraham, Abraham, was he justified before God or after circumcision? Before or after circumcision? And the answer was before. As a matter of fact, he was. Abraham was justified even before the law was given to Moses. So therefore, you can't be justified by these things. Rather, the fulfilling of the law, the giving of the law, the circumcision, the baptism, all of these things, the, the, the giving of the Lord's help, all of these things happen because they're the result of salvation. So this man, he, he gives to the poor. He gives of his wealth because he is saved, not to be saved. It's an evidence of what is going on Romans 4, 11 to 12 affirms this. So, do works not play a part? No. Look at Zacchaeus. How do we truly know he believed? His works showed it. This was to destroy easy believism. And so what we need to see here, what we can see from Zacchaeus, especially in a Christian culture that is just like, hey, just, just receive Jesus. Pray this prayer and you're good, man. You've got your hellfire and brimstone ticket out of here. He says, no, you need to look and see this. You want to truly be a child of Abraham, a son of Abraham? You truly want to be saved? Your works are going to demonstrate that. Your life is going to change. You don't make Him the Lord. He is the Lord. And so, uh, I would encourage you to read James 2, 19-23. You affirm your faith by your works. That's exactly what Zacchaeus is doing here. And Jesus affirms this. Now we sin. We don't always do the works that we want. And so we repent. We repent. We turn back to the grace of God. And that in and of itself is a work. It's a demonstration that, of something that God uh, loves. A broken and a contrite heart. But notice the, the final verse there that Jesus proclaims His message. His mission rather. We touch back here to the main point, the mission of Jesus. Jesus is the one who sought Nicodemus. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is the one who sought Nicodemus. And Jesus is the one who sought His disciples. He sought Jeremiah. He sought and called Abraham out of a pagan land. He sought Moses. He sought you if you are His. Jesus doesn't fail in His mission. He fulfills His mission. Jesus seeks and saves the lost and He is still doing that. I would encourage you to take your going deeper questions. Go down to number 3, Isaiah 49, 1-7 and read that at home. Look at that and see what God is doing in the proclamation of the Gospel. But let me read for you just Psalm 67. It's only seven verses. It says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us, Selah, that Your way may be known on the earth, Your saving power among all the nations. him do you see what god is doing god all the way back in the psalms is saying all the nations of the earth are going to praise me all the nations are going to come and hear the gospel hear the good news and they're going to be saved and they're going to be raised up to praise him and isn't that what you see in revelation jesus doesn't fail in his mission we don't always understand how he's working his mission out But He is not going to fail in His mission. And so what we need to see from this, what we need to take from this is point five, is we need to be thankful for God's grace and reciprocate it. We need to be thankful. The the people were grumbling against it. We need to be grateful for it. And then we need to, to... Share the grace that has been given to us. We should not boast except for in Christ. We should be people who give thanks. You know, one of the things that depraved people don't do is they don't give thanks. Romans 1. The children will be hearing about that in the next weeks, I'm sure, as Joey goes through it, right? They don't give thanks. We need to give thanks. Give thanks to God. Not grumble against Him. So then what we are doing when we share the gospel with our neighbors, co-workers, families, friends, we are seeking the lost. It can be discouraging, but keep at it. I remember when I was a little kid. Closing illustration here. It's getting late, I know. I remember when I was a little kid. My, my great-grandparents, they grew up in, they, they lived in a place called Huntington, Pennsylvania, in the mountains. And I've told you all before that they were truly mountain people. On my grandmother's side, her last name was Mountain, okay? So we're not talking about high-class society here, okay? You should see some of their family photos when you're standing there with a quarter leg of a deer on your shoulder. Anyway, and so my great-grandfather loved to go in the Raystown Town Dam uh, fishing. He used to go fishing there all the time. And so my dad took me there one time. And I remember sitting there, and you know, as a little boy, I don't even know how long we were out there, but I was fishing, and I'd reel, and I didn't get anything. And I fished, and I reeled, and I didn't get anything. And finally, he said, all right, come on, let's go. And I was like, I just want to catch something. He's like, you're not catching anything, let's go. I said, all right. We start walking away, and I remember turning around, running back over. I dipped my rod right in the water one time, because you're a kid. One more time, and you know what I pulled up? A big old fish. If I would have left, I never would have had that memory. If I would have left and quit and gave up, I would have never caught that fish. You know, it's easy for us to quit and give up sharing the gospel. Don't. You never know. You never know what is going to happen. Count of Zacchaeus teaches us many things. God might be drawing someone that you have that opportunity to reach. Keep doing it. It teaches us that God truly loves people. He seeks them. And when He does, He radically saves them. So ask the Lord to take these things that help us to grow in these areas for his glory and to praise and be thankful for the son of man the all-powerful one Daniel 7 who came to seek and to save the lost let's pray our God and our father we are grateful for who you are for what you have done in our lives for the example of Jesus Lord we thank you for the grace in Zacchaeus's life and Lord we just scratched the surface of of all of the rich meanings and teachings that we can glean from this passage. But Lord, we are grateful for Jesus' mission on His way to Jerusalem to give His life for His people. And so Lord, I pray that You will help us to, to learn these things. Lord, I pray that You will change us, mold us into the image of Your Son. And Lord, I just want to pray that if there's anyone here today that they don't know You as their Lord and Savior, Maybe they've gone to church since they were a little kid, and they've thought that they're good, but help them to see, Lord, that there is none good, there is none righteous, that they need to embrace Christ. Draw them and call them to Yourself today, Lord. And if they will cry out to You, Lord, they will indeed be saved. For those of us, Lord, who know You, Lord, we confess we don't walk in Your ways as we should, so we do pray that you will forgive us. And Lord, ignite within us a passion, a desire to, uh, to love you, to be thankful, to not grumble, to not look down on people, but to see people for who they truly are, people loved by you. And Lord, I pray that you will draw people to yourself and that you will use us as instruments, Lord, of bringing them into the kingdom. Now, Lord, I pray that you will bless us in your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. And now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord richly bless you today.